Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Acts. This morning we are looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. These verses really mark the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. In the first missionary journey, uh, he and Barnabas, of course, were sent out by the Antioch church. Uh, they went to multiple cities in and, uh, and Cyprus, Pamphylia, Pisidia, Galatia, a number of cities in those regions. There they shared the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles. Many believed. There was also significant opposition pretty much everywhere they went. But one of the most important things they did besides sharing the gospel was starting local churches in those cities where people had believed. Well, at the conclusion of that first journey, of course, Barnabas and Paul returned to the Antioch church. They gave an encouraging report on the amazing things that God had done through them, uh, especially focusing on the fact that the Lord had opened up a door to the Gentiles, uh, and the people of Antioch were especially encouraged by that because it was primarily a Gentile church. At the same time, however, there are some Jewish teachers who had come down from Jerusalem and had begun to teach that unless these Gentile believers were circumcised, they could not be saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas stood up against this teaching. Uh, they and others went to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and elders of the church there about it. There was a great debate on whether Gentiles needed basically to become Jews in order to become Christians. Well, the council decided that those Jewish teachers were absolutely wrong about that. A person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they did give instructions to the Gentile believers on things that they could do to help them live in harmony uh, with, pe with, with, pe with, with the Jews, especially with Jewish Christians. Well, Paul and Barnabas then returned to Antioch to report on what had happened at that council in Jerusalem. Believers were once again very encouraged by what they heard. It wasn't long after that that Paul and Barnabas decided to return and visit the believers in all the cities where they had proclaimed the word of the Lord in that first journey. But there was a problem, as we noticed last week. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along with them on that journey. Paul was strongly against this idea. Uh, Mark had started out with them on the first journey, but when once they had uh, once they landed in Pamphylia from Cyprus, he left them. We don't know why Mark left, but Paul felt like his actions were not justified. Uh, he says that Mark deserted them. Well, Barnabas, as a man who had a strong ministry of encouragement to people, he really wanted to give Mark another opportunity. They both stood very firm in their opinions on this, and they ended up, therefore, with two separate missionary journeys. Barnabas took Mark with him, and they returned to minister in Cyprus, where the first journey had started. And then Paul took Silas, who was a prophet, a leader from the Jerusalem church, who had come up to Antioch for a time, and they traveled through Syria and Cilicia, kind of other, other regions where that first journey had gone. So they were going back to help strengthen the churches that had already been established there. We actually don't hear anything else about Barnabas throughout the book of Acts. Uh, I think it's important to remember, though, I mean, and, I mean, the Lord used him in just significant, just remarkable ways. In the Jerusalem church, in the, in the Antioch church, in Paul's life, in the missionary work in the Roman Empire, I mean, Barnabas was just so key. Luke's purpose, however, is to focus on the ministry of Paul. So therefore, that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is a focus on, on Paul's ministry. Uh, 
So let's look now at Acts 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So Paul and Silas, as they traveled to Derby and Lystra, these were the last two cities that they visited on the first missionary journey. So they end up, of course, being the first two places that they visit on their second journey because they're going backtracking from where they had been. So they travel there from Antioch. Interesting to note that they would have had to, would have passed through uh, a famous pass called the Sicilian Gates. This was a pass through the Taurus Mountains going north to south, 80 miles long, and it still exists in modern-day Turkey. If you look it up, you'll see that. But we're told immediately about a young man named Timothy. Timothy is a name that is quite familiar to us. I mean, of course, there are two books in the New Testament named after him. They are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy while he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. But he was also an important part of Paul's missionary work, really from here on. And the first thing we're told about him is that Timothy was a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. A true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing said about him in verse 1. And that description really is the foundation for everything else about him. The thing that defined his life more than anything else is that he was a disciple of the Lord. And that's really something that should be able to be said about every Christian, that the most fundamental thing about us is that we're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, because Timothy shows up in other places in the New Testament, we're able to know a number of things about him. First, we have some important information about how Timothy first became a disciple of Christ. So we know that the Lord used the scriptures. The Lord used the scriptures that his mother and grandmother taught him to give Timothy the wisdom that led to salvation through faith in Christ. So when Paul arrives in Lystra, Timothy is already an established disciple of the Lord. Well, how did that happen? Well, it was probably it was anywhere from three to five years earlier that Paul and Barnabas had been in this city in the first missionary journey sharing the gospel there. So that is part, at least a part of the explanation of how he was a disciple at this point. But we know from Paul's second letter to Timothy that there's more to the story than that. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes this. He says, For I am mindful, of course he's writing to Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it's in you as well. Back in Acts 16.1, we are told that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. Well, in 2 Timothy, we find out that her name was Eunice, and Paul obviously had come to know the family uh, quite well, and so um, he also gives us the name of Timothy's grandmother, which was Lois. Both of these women were committed Christians. Paul describes them as having a sincere faith. And as committed Christians with a sincere faith, it was just natural for them that they would do their best to pass that on to Timothy. Well, in 2 Timothy 3.14, we see more about how that happened. 
Uh, and the verses just before, I'm going to read verses, I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But the verses just before that, Paul was talking about persecutions and sufferings, especially that he endured in places like Lystra, uh, Timothy's hometown. And he speaks of evil men. He speaks of imposters, people who were not at all genuine Christians. He speaks of them going from bad to worse. And they themselves are deceived and seeking to deceive others. And then in that context, he says this to Timothy. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was very different than those deceitful people who had, were posing as Christians that Paul is talking about. Timothy knew the truth. These others were deceived and were practicing deception of others. Timothy knew the truth of the scriptures because, uh, because he had been taught them. He'd been taught them by his grandmother. He'd been taught them by his mother. His father was not a Christian. We're uh, spoken of or that, that's, that's alluded to, uh, at least in Acts 16. So his mother and grandmother took up the slack there. This is really one of the most important passages in the Bible that talk about how vital it is that parents make sure their children are taught the Scriptures. Paul's preaching in Lystra in that first journey may and probably did have a big influence in Timothy's life, but it was his mother and grandmother who laid the foundation for that. It's the truths of the Scripture that give the wisdom that leads to salvation in Christ Jesus. This is a process, really, that starts when children are very young, continues throughout their growing up years, and Paul confirms that it's a true blessing to have parents take you to church, teach them yourselves. Matthew Henry made this very simple observation, which I really liked on your outline. It says, it is a great happiness to know the Holy Scriptures from our childhood. It's a great happiness. Well, Timothy had that great happiness. Some of you, many of you have had that same great happiness to be taught those scriptures from your childhood. And the Lord used that to bring salvation to his life. He used it to prepare Timothy for a life of fruitful service to the Lord. Well, the next thing we see about Timothy is that he lived out his Christian life in such a way that it was obvious. It was obvious to people who knew him. They could see he was a Christian. Timothy clearly professed to being a committed disciple of Christ. And in Acts 16.2 we read, He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe were part of the Lyconia area, which was really in a, the, the Galatian region. And the fact that Timothy is known in other cities speaks of the connections that those cities apparently had with each other. And it may have been that Timothy had already begun to visit some of the churches in those other cities and was serving in various ways, possibly. We don't know for sure, but somehow the brethren in those local churches knew who Timothy was. They knew him. They knew him to be a young man who took his faith seriously. He applied those sacred writings of Scripture to his life. And just thinking about that reminds me of something that Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter. I've always really, I don't know, this, this, this passage has always been a special one to me. First Timothy 4.12, he tells Timothy once again, 
Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. At the time he wrote that letter to Timothy, it's estimated that he was probably in his late 30s. Paul considered him a young kid, late 30s. When we back at Acts 16, estimates are that he probably in his, maybe had been in his late teens uh, when we're, while we're looking back, back at Acts 16. But these are helpful principles in 1 Timothy 4.12 that are important to consider when we think about our example to others. There are, what, five words? One, two, three, four, five. Am I counting them right? Five different uh, principles and uh, things that, uh, that Paul especially focuses on. First, he says this is our speech. So the idea of be careful about the things that come out of our mouth. Are they true? Are they helpful? Do they express thoughtfulness of others? Do they display pride or humility? Our speech is important. Next is our conduct or our behavior. Do we conduct ourselves in ways that show we are responsible, that we are respectful, willing to admit when we fail? You could add to that list, but next thing Paul mentions is love. Well, that probably especially speaks of our relationships with other people. Do we think of others as more important than ourselves? Do we try to do what's best for them? Next in the list is faith. Do we understand our faith? Do we understand the truths of the gospel? Do we seek to let the scriptures guide us as to what we believe, as to the, uh, uh, the convictions that we hold, the decisions that we make, the priorities in our life? And then finally, Paul lists purity. So how do we conduct ourselves with members of the opposite sex? Do we seek to guard our minds, battle temptations to do or to think on things that are impure? All these areas give definition to how it is to, about living our life as Christians. All Christians have committed themselves to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And our behavior is to give evidence of that. Timothy, that, happened with, that was a, something we see in Timothy. Our behavior gives evidence of our faith. And people who knew him in the church spoke highly of him because of that. The next thing we see about Timothy is that he was a faithful learner and a fellow worker with Paul in his ministry. Faithful learner and a fellow worker. One of the most basic definitions of a disciple is one who is a learner. So it's a person who is teachable. There is always just so much to learn. I am oftentimes reminded that there are so many things that I just really do not understand very well. Even if I just limit that to spiritual things, Christian things, things related to the Bible without getting into all kinds of areas that I'm completely clueless about. But I think when I think about that, it's almost kind of sad in some way when I think there's so much I don't understand because I'm getting older. I probably know more now than I've ever known. Of course, at the same time, I've forgotten a large percentage of that stuff that I've learned, which kind of adds to the, to the issue. But one thing I have learned as I learn, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Everything I learn seems to open up some things that are like, oh, I didn't even read about that before. If I did, it was a book I read 20 years ago and I've forgotten. It's all, I mean, the, the, as Christians, we have a Bible that is chock full of truth. 
It is the one book in the world that can be described as the inspired word of God. Paul made it clear to Timothy that God has made the scriptures to be profitable to us. They're profitable to us. He mentioned several things to teach us. So teach us the things that are true. Teach us the things that are God-honoring. The scriptures are also profitable because the scriptures reprove us. In other words, they show us where our understanding is incorrect. They show us where our thoughts or our attitudes or our behavior is wrong. So they show us our sin. They reprove us for our sin. The Bible does that. The scriptures are also profitable because they don't just show us what's wrong. They show us how to correct that. They bring correction. They correct that thinking that is not what it should be. They correct those thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors that need to be changed so they can be truly, we can be truly honoring to God. And so altogether, the scriptures are profitable to train us in what a righteous life looks like. They enable us to be equipped for good works that God has prepared for us. Well, Timothy learned from Paul. I'm sure that he paid close attention to the things that Paul said. And you can, and the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy, can imagine how Timothy treasured those letters when he got them where he was and all the responsibilities he had and just the love he had for Paul and that Paul had for him. And, I mean, you just, it's, I just know he poured over those letters and learned from them and did everything he could to practice them and put them into practice in his church and in his life. So, Paul was a learner. He also proved to be a very dependable worker, a faithful worker, a fellow worker along with Paul. Uh, we will see in future chapters in Acts that there are multiple times when Paul sent Timothy to another place or had him stay in a certain place while Paul moved on to, some, to another, uh, another, another uh, city. And that's because he trusted Timothy. He knew he could trust Timothy. And so he would send him or leave him in certain places to carry on things that Paul had and others had started. It's also interesting to note that Paul includes Timothy's name in the opening line of a number of his letters. For example, the second letter to the Corinthians is from Paul and Timothy. Uh, you find that in the letter to the Philippians. You find that in the letter to the Colossians. You find that in the letter to first, both first and second Thessalonians. Timothy, Paul includes Timothy's name in the, in the openings of those letters. Several times he tells various churches that he's sending Timothy to them to be a help to them. In Philippians, we saw this a, a few weeks ago when, uh, in the study that uh, Jeremiah led us in in the morning, is that he sent, in Philippians, he speaks of Timothy as being a person of kindred spirit, one who was genuinely concerned with the welfare of the Philippian believers. He called Timothy his true child in the faith. He exemplified what it meant to be a faithful learner, but also a faithful worker in ministry. Curtis Vaughn, uh, one of my professors at Southwestern Seminary, uh, includes this quote in his commentary on the book of Acts. I always thought it was a fascinating quote. He says, We have no words from his lips, of course, speaking of Timothy, we have no words from his lips, no letters from his pen. Paul loved him. That is all. Timothy comes before us for 14 or at most 18 years and vanishes, never to be forgotten, never to be known, loved not for his own sake, but because Paul loved him. Pretty remarkable, really, when you think about it. Timothy was a true disciple, 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loved him, and Timothy obviously loved and was committed to Paul as well. So much we can learn from his example. Now, the next thing we see in these verses from Acts 16 is this, that Paul determined it was prudent to circumcise Timothy to better facilitate ministry to the Jews. So verse 3, Paul wanted this, uh, says Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is really quite an interesting verse. Uh, it can also be confusing in light of all the things that had just happened with the Jerusalem Council, which was a huge deal. Why would Paul do this? Well, let's take some time to work through it. First, we, all, we, we, we can know for certain that Paul was adamant that the gospel did not, did not require Gentile believers to be circumcised in order to be saved. He was adamant about that. We spoke of this earlier when Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary journey, went to the Antioch church, uh, and when they were speaking of God's amazing work, they had, gent they had uh, Jewish uh, Christians, or at least claimed to be Christians, who challenged them on their ministry to the Gentiles. Acts 15.1 says they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, immediately, we know that Paul and Barnabas stood up and contended with these teachers in a very earnest and uh, intense kind of way. So Paul immediately knew that this was false teaching because it compromised the true gospel. We also know that Paul and Barnabas actively testified about this at the Jerusalem council. At that council, again, the teachings of those Jewish teachers were rejected. A letter was written to affirm all the Gentile believers and their faith with no requirement to be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas took the letter back to the Antioch church and told them all that had happened. But there's three additional things that I want to mention here that further illustrate how adamant Paul was against requiring Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. First, we know that Paul actively made known the ruling of the Jerusalem council on this matter. That's verse 4 in Acts 16. It says, Now while they were passing through the cities... They were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So again, those decrees affirmed the gospel of salvation by grace, not by works. So the Gentiles were not required to be circumcised in order to be saved. The letter also included some things that Gentiles were encouraged to refrain from in deference to Jewish believers. I mean, there were things that were connected to pagan feasts, which were quite popular in the Roman Empire. And there were some things connected with that that they were encouraged to refrain from. Now, the letter specifically, we know this from, from Acts 15, the letter was addressed to the brethren in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Well, Paul actually made this decree much more widely known than that. I mean, there were teachers in the Galatian region who were continuing to teach that a Gentile must basically become a Jew in order to become a Christian. So Paul broadcast the decision of the Jerusalem church even more broadly than what they had even suggested. A second example of how adamant Paul was against requiring Gentile believers to be circumcised is this. At the Jerusalem council, Paul refused to have Titus, refused to have Titus, one of his fellow workers, circumcised as he was pressured to do. You'll recognize the name Titus. There is a letter in the New Testament that Paul wrote to him while he was pastoring in Crete. 
We don't know as much about Titus as we do about Timothy. We know that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to Jerusalem for that Jerusalem council. His name doesn't show up in the book of Acts, but from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we know that he worked with Paul in some aspects of his missionary journeys. Well, it's in Paul's letter to the Galatian churches that we learn that Titus was with Paul and Barnabas at the Jerusalem council. So I'm going to read for you Galatians 2, 1 to 5. Paul says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So he's basically saying there, neither the leaders in the Jerusalem church nor Paul himself thought that Titus needed to be circumcised. They adamantly said no. Now, they says, Paul says there was pressure. He was getting pressure from those Jewish teachers who professed to be Christian that Titus should be circumcised. But Paul is emphatic when he said he would not submit to their demands. He clearly understood that the truth of the gospel was at stake in that. He would not compromise the gospel because it's the good news of salvation to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Paul was adamant. Finally, we see that in his letters, Paul appealed to Gentile believers that they not submit to circumcision. The strongest appeal was in his letter to the Galatians, and Paul's recounting of what happened to Titus was part of that. He gets even more specific over in Galatians chapter 5. I want to read verses 2 to 12 for you here, pretty strongly worded. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I, am, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. This is a strongly worded warning. Paul says that the acceptance of circumcision basically means a full surrender to legalism. They are saying that their standing before God is based on what they do and not resting on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for them. They need to stop listening to those teachers who are pushing this on them. And Paul is so upset 
with what these teachers are saying that he basically says in verse 12 that he hopes the knife will slip and they will cut themselves off in a very literal kind of way. In other words, he's pronouncing a curse on them. Paul is pronouncing a curse on those who are perverting the gospel. That's what he was doing. It's an imprecatory prayer, basically, in the New Testament. I don't know how it could be said any more strongly (laughs) than what he said there. He was adamant that the biblical gospel did not require believers, Gentile believers, to be circumcised in order to be saved. But still, we see in our next point that Paul had Timothy circumcised, and Timothy agreed to this, in order to keep the door open to gospel ministry among the Jewish people. On the face of it, it looks like Paul's being pretty inconsistent here. But in reality, he isn't. In fact, Paul is being quite consistent with his desire to, be, to see the true gospel fully shared with all people. Just go through and mention a couple observations here. First, Timothy being circumcised had nothing to do with his salvation. It did not alter his standing before God at all. He was already converted. He was already a disciple of Christ. In Christ, he was fully forgiven, fully righteous before God. His agreeing to be circumcised did not change that in any way. A second thing here is that Luke tells us clearly in verse 3 what Paul's reason was for doing this. Timothy was a young man who had become quite well known in the area, had a great reputation, like we said. But since people knew of him, they would also have known that though his mother was Jewish, his father was a Greek. And they would have been, had rightly assumed that his Gentile father would not have, al- have allowed his son to be circumcised when he was born. They would have known that. And they would have been right about that. A third point is that this was a decision that was unique to the circumstances of this particular day and even, 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 uh, even in this particular area because of all the people who knew Timothy. You would not hear of someone considering this kind of action in our day. The circumstances were unique. They, they, they fit that specific time, doesn't really fit. So, so, that, so that's another thing that's going on there. And the fourth comment I want to make about this is that Paul's purpose was to keep the door to gospel ministry to Jewish people open. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he had called to be. That's what his ministry had, by, had, been, had primarily been. But he had a deep love for the Jewish people. He was Jewish. He dearly wanted to receive, see his fellow Jews receive Jesus as the Christ. And if it was known that a member of his missionary team was uncircumcised, he would not have been allowed to speak in the local synagogues in the cities that they would have visited. A significant opportunity for ministry would have been lost. Why don't you listen to what he said? This is another, another uh, uh, paragraph from, uh, that Paul wrote that I think relates to this as well. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, um, 19 to 23. <coughs> Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, 
though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So I think this action with Timothy was Paul becoming as a Jew so that he might win the Jews. He clearly understood that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, and he did not want any Gentile to be circumcised under the belief that their standing before God depended on it. But he did it out of love for the Jewish people. We should add here, by the way, this says a lot about Timothy. he clearly had to submit to something that was going to be extremely painful. 16, 17, 18 years old. Something he knew he didn't really have to do. But he agreed. He was a disciple. He, was, uh, he, he learned from Paul, agreed with Paul. He was convinced by Paul's reasoning here. He wanted to see Jewish people saved as well. So he was willing to become as a Jew, so to speak, so that he could help Paul win the Jews. One final thing we need to notice in this passage before we close, and that's in verse 5. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. This is another of those summary verses that Luke uh, sometimes uses to give us something of an overview of things that have been happening uh, in the ministry that's been going on as the gospel is being shared. So we see here our final point, and that is that God honored, God honored the faithful proclamation of the word of the Lord by strengthening the churches in the faith and causing them to grow. So Luke basically tells us two things that were going on with the churches at this time. And of course, this is all in the context of all that had happened in the Jerusalem Council and how they had stood up for the gospel and all these things that were happening here with Timothy and uh, all these kind of, all, how the gospel is continuing to be shared. So the first thing he tells us says they were being the churches were being strengthened in the faith. Well, what does that mean? I think there's a couple of different ways that we could talk about that. But I think one of the things that's especially going on here is that the gospel has been defended against attacks that would have completely changed it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but it has to be the true biblical gospel. And they had Paul, Barnabas, others, other apostles had defended that gospel, held firm to it. All through history, there have been and continue to be attempts to change the gospel. We've talked about this before, but this, uh, I mean, people do all kinds of, people try to make it more palatable so that the culture won't be offended. People try to remove the fact that we've all sinned and stand guilty before God. That's not a popular teaching. People try to remove the fact that we all deserve God's wrath for how we've lived. That's even more unpopular, even among many professed Christians. Okay, I'm gonna, let me give you an example of that. One of the songs that we sing sometimes is uh, In Christ Alone, uh, Keith Getty wrote. I can't remember the phrase right now because it's just popped into my head, which is sometimes dangerous. But... Uh, there is a line in there that speaks, and so much of it, I mean, in Christ alone, it's, I mean, it's just it's glorifying what, who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. 
There's a line in there that speaks of Christ enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. Um, one of the Presbyterian denominations wanted to include that hymn in their hymnal they were printing. But they said, we want to change that line. We don't want that line in there. Well, Keith Gates said, no, we're not taking that line out. Well, since they wouldn't take the line out, they wouldn't include that because they did not want to say Christ endured the wrath of God for sinners. There's a lot of Christians who don't believe that that's true. That's watering down the gospel. People try to change the fact, for example, also, that there's only one way to be right with God. People don't like that either. They try to reject certain parts of the scripture because they're uncomfortable. Just so many things, just on and on and on. We must not do that. I mean, you may attract a few more people to church at times, but the church will not be strengthened in the faith if that happens. Instead, it is weakened. To be strong in the faith, we have to hold firm to what the Bible actually teaches. And we have to persevere in applying that to our own lives as well, being good examples like Timothy was. The second thing Luke tells us ties into the first. He says that the churches were increasing in number daily, which is really quite amazing because we know from that first journey there was all kinds of opposition. I mean, violent opposition to the gospel. But the churches were increasing in number daily. I believe this is tied to the truth that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. God was honoring their faith. He was honoring the gospel message, and people were regularly turning from sin and false belief to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. As I was looking through that verse, I thought, you know, this is a kind of a nice simple prayer to pray for our church, just to pray for the church in general even, to pray that our church and other gospel churches in general would be strengthened in the faith. Even though there's many attacks against it, that the church will be strengthened in the faith and that God would add to his church. It was happening daily here, but we'd, I would just add that God would regularly add to his church. Lord, we want to thank you again for your word. We thank you so much for the examples that we see. I've just always been so impressed with the example of Timothy. <clears throat> and again, a, a man whose name that we know quite well, if we know anything about the New Testament at all, we know the name of Timothy. Even though he was a man who never preached a sermon, we never don't have any record of his sermons that he preached or things that he wrote, but we have a record of the fact that Paul loved him, he loved Paul, and he was a faithful servant to Paul. Lord, I just thank you for the example of a young man who listened to his mom and his grandmother, who, who learned as they taught him, who applied those truths into his life, and actually that gave him the wisdom that led him to faith in Jesus Christ, prepared him for an amazing ministry with Paul that we still talk about 2,000 years after it happened. Lord, what an example he is for us. Help us to learn from that example. And one of the places that we learn, first off, if we realize we have an example to teach those, especially if we're parents or grandparents, to teach our children, grandchildren. But also, if you're a child at home and you are, have been blessed with that happiness of, um, of being brought to church, of being uh, 
the scriptures read to you and talked about in your home, what a blessing that is. Pay attention. Listen. Respond to what, to what is being taught there, like Timothy did. Such a great example to us. Lord, I ask that as a church that you would help us, that you would help us to be strong in the faith, to grow in strength. I ask that you would continue to add to your church, not just to our church, but churches that are seeking to be faithful to the gospel, that you would add to your church. I just ask you would graciously, mercifully do that. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I do not measure up. And therefore, I am under God's judgment, and I actually do deserve his wrath. But thank you that Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God on my behalf. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life for the rest of my days. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray.